Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 49 of the Gaming Moguls podcast. The only podcast where the rules are so opaque that we even house rule ourselves. I'm your host tonight, Mark Teske, along with my host, Jake Kloppenstein. Jake, how you doing tonight? Always wonderful, man. I'm sitting here. Um, there's a blizzard going on outside. It's it's kind of cozy, close to Christmas time. So for those not in the know, I think we're pretty obvious about the fact Jake and I both hail from the greater metro Minneapolis-St. Paul area up in Minnesota. And we get accused of being the great white north, and thus far this winter season has been anything but. Right, but we are certainly getting it now. It's absolutely dumping on us. Yeah, right now they're uh, they're forecasting somewhere between 11 and 16 inches of snow later this afternoon. So we get real winter and just in time for the Christmas holiday. Absolutely. But it has been really nice having 45 degree days um, in the pandemic where we can't really do much inside and we can go do some outside stuff, which has been nice. For sure. Well, like I saw somebody you- golfing in December. <laughs> <laughs> well, you and I actually got the chance to hang out in real life for more than five minutes for the first time in nine months here last week. And that was delightful. Yeah, it was nice. It was nice to see your, your pretty face and be you had to be subjected to my ugly mug, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, background here, Jake is gone hardcore into the frisbee golf hobby over the pandemic time and uh we suddenly i don't know why it took us all this time to figure out because i don't frisbee golf so it doesn't enter my brain to go hang out with you while you frisbee golf but i don't know why it didn't enter the brain where i could just go walk around and hang out and talk with you in the great outdoors yeah i mean it makes sense it's such a great pandemic activity because it's usually pretty well spread out and yeah it's been something i've been doing a lot just to see people and it's fun too and i bring my dog and she has a fun time with it. And it was nice to see you. I'm happy you got to walk along. Yeah, that was stupid. You should have been doing that because like half my family <laughs> no. does it. Of course, I had to wait for a windy 34 degree day to do it. Yeah, it was it was 70 and sunny like most this year. You could have come and done it then. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Oh, well, that was delightful. Well, as I mentioned before, we are hitting episode 49 right now. And it's hard to believe when we launched this baby two years ago that we'd be this far into it and that we'd have like a significant body of work behind us. and. That means that next episode is episode 50. Can you believe it? No, I can't hardly. I mean, and also you can tell because we have such a regular release pattern. This has been two years exactly, (laughs) right? You know, it's funny. I I don't know that we planned it out that way. It's like we perfectly foresaw that it was going to average out to once every two weeks. And two years later, here we go. Perfect. Here we go. There you go. That's awesome. Yeah, it's going to be fun. We're going to do something special. Yeah, we'll reveal later on in this episode. But I can tell you what we're not going to do. We are not going to do a year end wrap up, which kind of pains me, Jake. I'm going to be honest. I love the year end wrap up. But you correctly brought up the fact that it makes no sense. Yeah, I don't know. We're not board game reviewers. I don't think we can put ourselves with that hat. I think we are sometimes review games, but for the most part, we're just gamers. Have you played any 2020 releases? I did do a list. I think I played like seven outside of train games (laughs) or something like that. There's a geek group list I have, and I remember looking at it, and it was more than you'd think. Um, And even new to me games, I still think I got upwards of 20 just because we played so many new games in January and February. Oh, that's a good point. I mean, I'm looking at it going, maybe, yeah, it's got to be less than seven. I can think of four or five off the tip of my head, but there's probably a few that I'm not thinking of. I have nine 2020 games. However, that includes 18 Chesapeake and 18 MS, which I both played last year. Yeah, God, I keep forgetting 18 Chesapeake's in 2020 game because we've been playing that for so long. 
Mm-hmm. Weird. We did play some games, so I don't know if putting a top three list on the nine games I played that are new this year is very helpful or productive, no. <laughs> especially when I think two thirds of them involve a train of some category. We actually have a great idea. We'll give you a little heads up on what we're going to do on this one. Something that's honestly quite overdue, if I'm going to be honest. Perfect. But before we do that, why don't we talk about the games we played this week? Because you have not talked about the games you played in probably the last two episodes due to the fact that we're doing our top 20s. We got some stuff to catch up on, my man. What have you been playing? And honestly, there was some stuff on my what my what I've played list that was so old that I couldn't actually remember anything to talk about <laughs> it. So I'm going to have to replay it again just so I can talk about it. Oh, well. So I'm going to focus on the what we've played actually kind of recently. And the one interesting trend that I've got is I have played a bunch of really interesting small box trick taking games over the past couple of months. And uh, I'm just a massive fan of trick taking games and laddering games just across the board. And I've really unearthed some gems recently. Well, it makes sense. I mean, you have the perfect sized family for a trick taking situation. You know, you got two kids. You can do the kids versus the parents. You can do guys versus girls. It's perfectly divided, perfectly balanced. Oh, for sure. And everybody in my family really likes card game, trick taking game kind of things. So, you know, I know this is something that we can just whip out as a family and play, and it's going to be a surefire hit. And those are the games that I've been playing lately. The first one I want to talk about is a game that was actually recommended to me online that, frankly, I hadn't heard of. But uh, it was strongly recommended that I pick this game up if I was ordering anything from Japan. And I was actually making an order to Japan, so... I added this one on, and and man, I'm glad I did. That game is Scout by Key Kajino and One More Game. Scout is a, like I said, it's a small box Japanese card game. And it, I would call it, a, it's a pretty simple laddering game with a really interesting twist. So ostensibly what you have is you deal out all the cards, and somebody leads, and you have to play a set that's better than their set, a la laddering. You have to play consecutive cards, or two, three, four of a kind, something like that. The twist is, is that you cannot reorder your hand Bonanza style. So you pick your cards up and the cards have on them one number on the top, another number on the bottom. And when you get dealt the cards, you can either look at the top and play that hand or you can flip it over and play that hand instead if it's better. Once you play them out, you cannot ever reorder your hand. You play cards that are consecutive or pairs that are in order in your hand and you have to beat the set that's out there from the previous best set. Now, if you can't do that, your alternative is you can scout. When you scout, you actually pick a card off the previous winning hand, off either the front or the back, and you add it to any place in your hand, doing two things. Number one, it weakens the previous winning hand, and number two, it strengthens a future hand in your hand. But the person that gets scouted earns a victory point for having done that. Oh, for having their trick they won or card they played be scouted? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And then when you actually take and beat somebody's, you take those cards and flip them over and they count towards points at the end of the game. So if you pull out like a, I don't know, six card run and play it all out there, nobody's going to have six consecutive cards in their hand that are going to beat that. So what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to scout your deck for several different players turns and then paying you victory points for doing that. So you might earn three or four victory points just from people scouting that. Problem is the game ends when either somebody goes out or when it goes around the table with everybody scouting. Oh, so you still have to beat it. But you can't beat your own hand. Oh, so you need to have somebody do it. Okay. Yeah, you might want to have that happen. So like if you've got a bunch of victory points from people scouting you and you've got a bunch of tricks you've taken already down, 
you might want to play kind of the, the killer set that ends the game. Because what happens is everybody that still has cards in their hand then has to count those points against themselves. Mm, okay. That makes sense. So you're trying to actually end the hand early with you having the points and them having points stuck in their hand. I think that's something that's great about card games. I find it present in a lot of them, and I, I, I find it less present in traditional board games. But being able to stop a game at a certain point. Yeah, control over the end of the hand is a really interesting twist on this one that I haven't seen in a lot of other card games. I mean, most other card games are you play till everybody is out of cards or you play till somebody goes out of cards. But having a uh, an ending condition that you can play towards it is a really interesting angle on Scout that I haven't seen in a lot of other games. Well, is it Scout or is it Scout? Because it has an exclamation <laughs> <true>. point. <laughs> yes, it, it does have an exclamation point. And You'll find that's actually a theme today is games with exclamation points. We're going to blow everyone's speakers <laughs> off. We're going to have to like do that thing where you put the microphone over and just shout <laughs> in scout. There it is. Perfect. Well, that sounds really cool. I like that game. My issue is I just we'll talk about this later in the game, but I don't have that many people to play trick taking games with. Like I don't even have a group to play teach you with. And I love teach you. Yeah. Teach you can be a little challenging because it wants four people. Whereas right. this one, this one is uh, three to five, I believe. So maybe it'd be interesting to pick up a game that's more laddering like Teach You versus a regular trick-taking game because maybe it plays with more people. That might be good. Maybe I'll have to add Scout to the, the wish list or the Amazon.co.jp. I honestly, I cannot recommend this one higher. This one was a huge hit. We played it multiple times back to back. It took a round or two to sort of figure out what was good because the strategies are emergent in it, which you wouldn't think would be that much in a game that I just gave you that short of rules. But it took us a few plays to start figuring out what the optimal play was, because if you scout to build yourself a better hand, you're actually you're fattening your hand, giving yourself potentially more points and you're giving somebody else victory points. So there's a real tug of war of just playing out the best hand you need to to score the most points. It, it was hard to figure out and really, really rewarding. Well, it's awesome. Um, what would you give it on the mogul scale? Two something? Two B? Uh, yeah, I think this is a two B. It's got some stuff. The flip right. over the cards, playing the hands in a certain order. It might be a one B. Like the the rules are pretty simple and pretty easy to understand. And it's definitely there's more strategy than rules to this game. So it's a it's a soft two B. Got it. OK, I'm always happy over putting the rules mm -hmm. versus under. So anyway, mm -hmm. that's awesome. I think this is a game you will absolutely love when you get a chance to play. Wonderful. That is Scout. Next up is a game that also came in the same Amazon.co.jp box. And is also shouty. Wind the film! Must shout. <laughs> by our favorite publisher, Sashi and Sashi, designed by Sashi. <laughs> exactly. Also has an exclamation point on it, gratuitously. I don't... Do they get that excited about advancing film in Japan? You got it, man. Just wind it. Wind the film. You can see behind in the dark room. They're just, they're just going crazy. <laughs> um, wind the film is a game that actually was a 2016 release. It's been around for a long time, but has never been released in the U.S. Other than places like, uh, I think, Meeple Realty or something like that. Meep, Meeple uh, Source, I think. Meep, Meeple Source. Thank you. One of those Meeple companies has had it for sale on their game store for kind of a long time at kind of a high price. Yeah, it didn't seem like they were buying a pallet of a game when they went over. It's there. It seems like they were buying like a suitcase worth of games. Yes. Yeah. It was yeah, a little that's, too, that was too profity there, you know. Right. Right. So I've I've long had this one in the in my viewport, especially when reports came in that it was an awfully good game. Finally, I somebody said that both that and Scout were in stock at Amazon.co.jp and it was time to bite the bullet and just get them shipped to me. Gotcha. So what's this one like? 
This game I would describe again, boy, besides having an exclamation point, it also shares the can't reorder your hand mechanism. Mm. It's a little weird. So if you've ever played Bonanza, the Uwe Rosenberg classic, it's a bit like that where things get in your hand in a specific order and you have to play them out in that specific order. The big difference there, though, is it does not have the trading negotiation aspect that Bonanza has. Otherwise, it's a similar-ish game. So the way this one plays out is you've, there's a grid of cards out in the center that you're picking from. They're ostensibly locations that you're going to get photos from. What you do is you have the opportunity to scoop one to three cards from one of the edges of the rows and add them to the front of your hand. Then you can move one card forward someplace in your hand, any place you want to. So you can take like from the back and move it to the front or something like that. Then you're going to play the same number of cards from the back of your hand out in front of you. And these cards, are there's like seven different colors, yellow, purple, so on and so forth. You're going to make a tableau of each one of those colors. And those in the tableau have to be played consecutively, either up or down. They don't have to be consecutive, but if you're going upwards, you have to keep going up. You're going down. You have to keep going down. You have to play out the same number of cards as the number of cards that you drew. And if you can't successfully play those, then you have to play it upside down and they count as missed shots and they count against you at the end of the game. Poor winding of the film. Yes, exactly. So then you get special points awarded for a good shot. If you have three in a row first in a specific color or you play through a deck of cards and then there's uh, shuffled into that deck of cards is a sunset shot. And then by that point, there's like more limited number of cards that get put out. And one, basically once that tableau burns out, the game is done. You score up your piles of successful stuff and you score against yourself leftover cards and cards that are flipped upside down as missed shots. And oh my goodness, is this a thinky game? It's really hard. I just love what Sashi is doing with the really small box, mundane slice of life themed card games. Also, fun little Easter egg, Jake. If you take the cards and put them in order by color, they actually kind of form a little story. Each color card forms a little story. Like one of the lines is at a coffee. They're taking pictures around a coffee shop. Another one is abstract photos around a park. Another one is like silly kid photos. Each color has a theme. Like, you know, I was out taking abstract pictures that day. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Kind of going on a little quest. Right. Yeah, I mean, and compare this game to the other games that that he's done, which is uh, in blend, front of the elevators. Yep, blend coffee lab and in front of the elevators. You know, they're just like kind of nice, little, fun, cutesy, well put together, good voice games that all seem to be similar. And hearing you describe this one in the same kind of vein of really smart, fun, little thinky games, with not a lot of components that are approachable themes. I think they're doing a great job with publishing. This is definitely thinkier than those other two. Okay, cool. <laughs> this this is one that we were all sitting there going, oh, this is hard. Holy cow. I mean, it, it it's actually one of those that we played a hand and ran it back because we all realized we played it so bad the first hand, not really understanding how it would actually work. And then the second time through redoing it and just going, oh, I, I now see what I did wrong the first time. But holy cow, I can't figure out what's right because this is difficult, but in a, in a really good thinky puzzly way. Awesome. I am very excited to try that game. Mark was nice enough to get it for me for Christmas. I was on the order for the Amazon.co.jp and I'm excited to play it. However, I'm kind of nervous. Maybe I shouldn't play this with the family because I think it might be a little too thinky for them. They don't like being beaten down in games very much. Yeah. I mean, I think I, like our family liked it and so forth. I think you'd be okay with that one, but you know, this is going to be heavier than in front of the elevators. So I think you can probably judge like was in front of the elevators too much for them. No, in front of the elevators was, I think a good level for them. 
I don't know if they'd want to stretch beyond that. So we'll see. We'll see. Who knows? We usually just play Carcassonne anyways, and Carcassonne works just fine, especially when you have the winter-themed version. Very festive. Ooh. Yes. <laughs> uh, Mogul scale-wise, this is a solid 2B. Definitely cool. heavier than Scout. I don't think it quite reaches to the C level of strategy, but uh, I think it's a pretty solid 2B. Well, that's awesome. Jake, I did have a uh, moment or two of panic around your gift, though, because I know you had mentioned that you wanted to pick this up, and I had picked up your copy of it. And I played it and immediately went on to some of our favorite forums and started raving about how good of a game it was. And I thought, oh, crap. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you can't entice me. But thankfully, I did not go out to Amazon.co.jp. My laziness benefited you here because I've been saying <laughs> that I should do an order through them for like months. And I just won't do it because I don't like doing things. And it worked out well here. <laughs> so that's uh, Wind the Film by Sashi and Sashi, designed by Sashi. Speaking of kind of small box Japanese games, I, this doesn't really work, but Modius Designs, I think the, the original developer of this game sold the design to Tasty Minstrel. I think that's the story behind it, but I could be wrong. The game we're talking about is Mini Rails, designed by Mark Garretts, published locally by Tasty Minstrel Games. But as you talked about, that is a that is a reprint, correct? I think so. I think it has their name on the box, but I could be wrong. It could be a Oh, well, it doesn't matter. I, I know some stuff. I was just trying to show off for the podcast that I still know stuff, but I'm probably wrong. This game ended up coming out late in the evening after a play of another game, which we're going to talk about shortly. We had about an hour left and somebody said, hmm, what should we play? And I went, Ooh, wait a minute. I have just the thing. Whipped out mini rails on tabletop simulator and plowed through it because, you know, there's not a lot of rules in this game. No, and there it is doesn't not. take very long to play. No, it does not. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of this game. I bought it kind of out of a whim. I like to try a lot of Cube Rails game. I like to think of myself as a connoisseur of Cube Rail games, even though I haven't played that many and there's people way up beyond me. But it's just simple in what it is. I mean, you just get to buy one of the shares on the turn or you get to and then you get to build some rail with some another one. And depending on where you selected your actions, that determines when you get to operate next time on the same two different actions. What companies come out, what color discs come out are random every turn. So you don't know. There might be three red tokens out there and, and zero orange tokens or something like that. And everybody essentially snake drafts those things. And they have a choice as to whether take that token and use it as a invested share of stock or whether they use it to essentially build another link going out on their big hex grid and therefore increasing or decreasing the value of previous stocks. The twist on the game is that there's always one left over. There's always one more token than number of players, and whichever one is left over gets air quotes taxed. And if I was going to have one little beef on the game, I think that's a bad term because everybody talked about everybody. Oh, well, we don't want that one to get taxed. Right. But it's not that it's not a negative. It's actually a positive. It really means like you've paid your government dues. So now you're allowed to keep a profit. Yes. Is how it functionally works. If you've been taxed as a company, you then remove any negative share markers from everybody around the table. If you have not been taxed as a company, you remove any positive share markers and only count the negatives. So if you have invested in a company, you absolutely want it to get taxed so that you get positive points for that company. Correct. And then you don't want your the people who have a whole bunch of negative shares in a company, you don't want that one to be taxed because then they're going to get all theirs removed. But you want to make sure that their negative share value, they actualize that loss. And for a ridiculously simple game, there is a lot of tough decisions to make on this one. 
am I going to take a share in mini rails and invest it? Or am I going to build for somebody else's company hostily and put it on a minus three stock share points spot so that they lose value on there? Or am I going to try to navigate things to get my turn order first? And or last. Try to, being last is really good, too, because you get to determine what company what may or taxed. may not be taxed, right? Yeah, there's an awful lot of things to decide in this game. And it, it's funny, the people I played it with about halfway through just suddenly went, oh, I get this game and <laughs> this is really clever. So I think there's a good chance we'll be playing this again in the very near future. I would think that this game will do really well with our group based on it being a slightly thinky filler that's fast. Yeah, oh, I I agree with that completely. And I think this is something that you could easily play in sub half hour if everybody knew how to play it. Completely. I love this game. That was probably one of the hot games for me of the short game varietal right before pandemic happened. For sure. I don't think we get a mogul scale either. Have we ever mogul scaled this one, Jake? I've taken the last two. I'm going to let you take a swing at this one. Oh, this one's, I think this one's a 1B all day. Yeah, I'd go with that. There's just not that many rules compared to like a card game. There's just not that many things to really do with it. You either can do this or this to a handful of discs that are out there, and that'll determine what's going to happen to other people. I do say, though, for a lack of number of rules, it was challenging for people to understand the rules. That bit about taxing was very confusing to people. Agreed. I'd say it's a hard 1B. Yeah. But if you were to word it the way you said, where it's a permit to profit, that works much better versus uh, calling it tax. A hundred percent. And I would do that next time is that you're essentially you've like registered with the government and you're allowed to keep your profits or something like that. I I would describe that better next time. Completely. So I'm happy you guys liked it because I think we're going to be playing that a decent amount when we get back together. It's it, I was bringing it to a lot of game nights in January and February. So, Jake, inquiring minds are dying to know when's my copy showing up? I have absolutely no idea. Hmm. I think I filled out the thing because we we kickstarted the uh, what's it called? Mini Express. It's supposed to be more 18xxe done by the same designer and same publisher. But who knows? Tasty Menstrual Games seem to be. Oh, no, this one is through Modius Game Design. So I don't know. I'll look into it for you, man. There's a pandemic yeah. happening and the mail isn't showing up anymore and things are weird. <laughs> well, and I know it seems like the uh, the Kickstarter plug has been released and I've actually been having a fair amount of kind of six month overdue Kickstarters showing up. So. I don't know. Although that one just kickstarted this spring, right? So it probably isn't maybe didn't get that far behind. It actually might still not be behind. Who knows? Maybe they're trying to go for December, which means they're actually going to deliver in January, February. I'll look into it and report. Mm. (laughs) So continuing our oh, before we move on, that was Mini Rails by Mark Garretts and Tasty Minstrel Games. Before we kind of stop our train roll, let's talk about another train game that we both played, which is pretty rare that we both played a game especially together. I know. Yeah, Jake, I was I was just I was wildly confused. I was on Tabletop Simulator with some friends and you were there. I know. Who's that? <laughs> I had to get a game off my shelf of shame and that that will make me cross anything. I will sit down and I actually think it worked out pretty well. We didn't do any rules explanations. We read it before and I think it actually worked out pretty well. I would agree with that. And I think it, it's also a game that like didn't have a lot of friction with regards to Tabletop Simulator. Like I felt it translated pretty well. Yeah, I, I think it's a pretty good one. There's some games that work really well on tabletop simulators and some that not. I would put Dual Gage in the good camp, assuming that you can clone the little money marker thingamajigs <laughs> faster and uh, don't get a mistype or forget what number you were doing or something along those lines. But let's first talk about what Dual Gage is. Dual Gage is designed by Tom Russell and published by Holland Spiel Games. What you're doing in is you're different investors in a different region of the world investing in different train companies. 
You can use these train companies to lay track, to lay down different stations. Sometimes it's a good idea. Most likely it's not. If you're playing the Portugal map, you're going to buy trains to run on these different routes that you've laid down and just kind of make money. It's a train game. I don't know. Well, and then you're going to either withhold or pay dividends. Jake, this sounds an awful lot like an 18xx game. Is it? No, it's not. It's firmly not. (laughs) Um, And a lot of games kind of brand themselves as 18xx light or something along those lines. But I think this one does a decent job of kind of hitting a lot of the similar points and kind of flow of the game with it being much faster. And it felt it paced so much differently than most cube rail games. Did you feel that same way? Yeah, it did. This one, it's very unique and interesting in how it does things like you don't pay for things traditionally the way that you would normally pay for them. Like you have to pay for track out of the company coffers, but you don't buy trains out of the company coffers. You actually just reduce the share value on things. Correct. Most things are handled by reducing or increasing the share value on things. And you just really use your money to essentially just buy other shares in things. That's really all you use your money for personally. Right. And then you need to have money because they need to lay track every turn. Every one of the companies or else they'll have to withhold. And you don't want to have that happen. So we've only played it twice, two and a half times. We played with a rule wrong a couple of times. So we don't have a lot. This is more of a first impressions kind of thing about the gameplay. But I think it's so far going really well. My main complaint with Cube Rail games is sometimes I can tell after the first couple of plays, I'm just not interested in pursuing it more. Mm-hmm. And this game is certainly not falling into that camp. It's falling into the camp that I want to play it more and I want to figure it out, which at least that has it going for it. But I think we do have some complaints about this game. My main complaint kind of falls with it in kind of two different camps. The first one being the graphic design on this and the physical copy is very pretty, but it is not super usable. And the way I put that is I was playing this in person and If you Google the map, you can look at the map on dual gauge, the Portugal map specifically. This game is designed to be played with poker chips. And the game has certain spots on the board, which indicate where you're supposed to like have the company's stuff. It has all of the different station markers you can put it. It kind of determines how many share values you're going to go up or down. So it's good to have that be a part of the game. And there's not enough space to the left side to put your poker chips. So it ends up being this crowded mess. And it's not like the board is crowded. Otherwise, you could go way further up, but it probably hasn't a I don't know, nine by 11 spot that they instead they put all of the rules in pretty small text that nobody would probably read aside from the one person who's really close to it. So that's kind of annoying, but I get it. They're a small operation. Who knows what, what, what ended up to go that, but, and it seems like they've fixed it with further map iterations. I know that the Detroit one has huge areas for you to put all of your stuff and your money for each one of the components. My other complaint kind of flavor is what's the target demographic for this? If you were to design a kind of opaque train game designed for like kind of people who like winsome games, I would assume people who are buying those are people that are kind of familiar with 18xx, familiar with Age of Steam, familiar with a lot of Cube Rail games. I would probably continue to use the terminology that has been established by that community. So for example, in this game, the way that it's worded is you go from your home to different stops. And in most games that I've played, they usually refer to those as links, as in Age of Steam, a connection between two revenue centers or something along those lines would be a link. And that kind of makes a little bit more sense when it comes to stacking these trains end to end, because you don't know if you count your original spot where the last train stopped or not, versus just saying you can cross links. But I don't know. Yeah, I would say one of my my favorite thing about this game is also my least favorite thing about this game. Let's talk about colors for a second, Jake. It's one of those, like, let's look at, like, blues or reds, right? There's a lot of different shades of those. 
And you either have to match them perfectly or you have to make them very different. If they're really close to each other, they will always look wrong if they're close, but not quite the same color. And both my favorite thing and least favorite thing about this game is how close it is in color to 18xx games, yet not far enough apart. Let me give you some examples of that one. At first blush, it looks like an 18xx game. When you approach dual gauge, it has a stock round and an operating round. It has phases of the operating round that are things like lay track, buy trains, run trains, pay dividends. Yeah, that's all the phases. Just in the wrong order, but... (laughs) I found myself continually tripping on that fact because I expected it to be an 18xx game, yet it wasn't. And I would, like, keep... Doing things wrong, like, oh, yeah, that's right. You buy trains before you run rather than after you run. And it was difficult to wrap my brain around those things sometimes. And that's fine. Like, games can be different. I'm not saying that's a fault of the game, but it certainly made it more challenging than it would have been just because it is it was really close yet different. Right. And I think that kind of peaks at the the choice of the numbering of the trains. Yeah, and that's the, that's the one thing. Like, I'm okay with the graphic design on it. And I think it's very pretty. Oh, it's 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 a gorgeous looking map. I really like the way it looks. I just For don't sure. like the usability of it. 100%. I'm very interested in the game because it is different, and I like the differences in there because now suddenly my brain doesn't work correctly and I have to figure it out. And that's something I love in a game. To a point. But... The choice to number the trains 18xx style with like a two train, a three train and a four train, which an 18xx stands for how far it can run is baffling because they don't work that way at all. What they do is that that's how much they cost in terms of shares to buy them, but they all run the same. Share value depreciation. Correct. A really expensive five train or four train runs the same distance as a really cheap two train. There's no difference between the two of them other than the fact that they are for later in the game and they cost more. Right. And so it causes your shares to go down. That's super confusing in terms of playing. And I think it could have been very simply fixed by having it being called an A train rather than a two train. And and just having a price on it. Right. And in this particular map, an A train costs two shares. And in a different map, maybe an A train costs one share or four shares or something like that. And it actually makes the game more malleable if you were to have them called A trains rather than two trains, three trains and four trains. And I think it kind of disambiguates an awful lot of those decisions. So, you know, if I were going to say I would change one thing personally, like I think the system works great, but I think the nomenclature could have been clarified. Agreed. And then that's that's my other point. It's said in bold in the rules, right? This is not how far the train goes. All trains are the same after you have it. And understand they have to, the the reason why they have to be indicated after you buy them is they do rust. So four trains kill the two trains. Yeah. So that, that, Mm -hmm. that does happen. There has to be some sort of demarcation of what the train is, but it could have been not a number, especially when it's associated with the 18xx things, make them like 10, 20, 30, 40, or something like that. I don't know, whatever, figure it out. Yeah. But I think the the A, B, C, D, E thing or whatever phase you want to do would make it more malleable, as you said, and just would make it a little better for a lot of people. Aside from that, I think we like the game. We have some complaints with the component choices and kind of physical production of it. But so far, we're really liking the design. So good job. Yeah. And uh, thus far, we've only played the Portugal map. I, I'm personally very excited to try the Detroit map because uh, I, I think I maybe have mentally decided the Portugal map is a beginner map. And <laughs> 
And thus far, there's five shares available. There's five companies available. And every time we've played with four person that gets two companies at the start and has ended up winning and we haven't figured out how to defend that, that may not be a fault in the game. And I'll fully admit that that may be just that we're dumb. At least I'm <laughs> I'm dumb. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I'm curious to figure out how to undumb that. But uh, I'm also curious to go to what's positioned as the advanced map and see how that changes it. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of the opposite. I'd like to just keep on playing this one until we surmise every kind of corner and different tripping up point that exists in this game. So anyway, that is Dual Gauge by Tom Russell and Hollenspiel Games. Excellent. I think it's a hit. I'm, I'm a big fan of it so far. One other thing to say about Dual Gauge is I think it's going to work really well with our game group. Similar to Mini Rails, it's kind of in that length, maybe a little longer, more like an hour, 45 minutes, hour 15 kind of territory. But those kind of games get played a lot in our game group. The You can either play a kind of light to midweight Euro, or you can play this while we're waiting for other people to show up. I'm going to pull out Dual Gitch a lot. It's that perfect game for, you know, so-and-so is showing up at seven instead of six. So we need to just mark time until then, but we don't just want to play filler games. Right. And we, we end up running to that a lot. And I think our game group's going to like this a lot because it's trainee, but it's not. It kind of feels, it's, it's good. It, it hits a point in the the train game ethos that I thought was kind of underrepresented, at least in my pursuit. Mm -hmm. Another thing too, that um, I think is a big plus for it going forward is that it has the, uh, it has the trappings of a uh, burgeoning system game system game, meaning that this game, there's a core set of rules. And then by extending it with different maps and a couple of tiny rules tweaks, it becomes a different experience and much the same the way that age of steam works. Right. And that's, I mean, we love age of steam. (laughs) We have more games that are like age of steam. Let's do it. So anyway, that is Dual Gauge by Tom Russell and Hollenspiel Games. Fantastic. Well, Jake, if you'd think I've talked enough about small card games, I haven't. I have another small <laughs> card game <laughs> that I'm going to talk time about. cute flavored, right? Oh, it's super cute. Uses a Japanese IP, and I've actually never heard this pronounced in real life. So if I'm slaughtering this, all of you Japanese IP fans out there, sorry. Gudetama, the lazy egg card game. Right. Yes. Is that how that's pronounced? I don't know what's pronounced. I saw a video on it once. Apparently, like laziness is really cute in Japanese culture. So like there's this little lazy egg and people just find it adorable. It is kind of cute, the little guy, but I don't find his laziness. Thank you. Yeah. My daughter squeed pretty hard when she looked at the art on the card. She <laughs> well, was I just like, too. oh, it's so cute. <laughs> it is very cute. <laughs> so the way the Gudetama, the lazy egg card game, which, by the way, designed by Ben Eisner and Steve Ellis, published domestically by Renegade Game Studio. So. Very available here in the U.S. and commonly available. You've got cards that are numbered 1 through 14 in several different suits. You go around the table and the idea is that you want to score the lowest points and you don't want to win tricks. When you play, you either have to beat the card that was played before you or you have to play the lowest card in your hand. Those are your two choices. You either beat it or you play your lowest card. And what you do is you play out seven tricks. The winner of the last trick scores the value of their winning card. The first person to 21 points loses, and whoever has the lowest score wins the game. What happens is you have this weird push-pull of the, I want to get rid of my big cards, but I can't. I also want to save my low card so I don't win the last trick, but I couldn't beat the previous big card, so I got to play a low, my lowest card. And where that really plays out, Jake, is that if anyone plays a one in the final trick, everyone else at the table scores their card instead of just the winner. So you're trying to do everything in your power to keep a one till a final trick. That's like the greatest thing ever. And I've gotten so close. I've gotten down to the next to the last trick a whole bunch of times and then got stuck having to play that one. Because remember, if you can't beat the previous hand, you have to play your lowest card, which is usually a one. Yeah, there's not many numbers below one. 
No, really delightful little game. I just taught you the entire game. It's super, super, super easy to play. And we ended up playing it back three, four times in the evening that we played it. Renegade Game Studio, I think, is doing a pretty good job of small box games. Oh, I yeah, I agree completely. Because they did uh, Arboretum. They've, they've, they've brought a few in where I'm somewhat happy with it. And I think a lot of publishers should maybe examine if they're offering a lot of small box card games. I feel like they are more accessible to other stuff. And who knows what ones are great? Well, Jake, they also published Time Chase at uh, about uh, Gen Con time last year, which was also a delightful little trick taking game. Yeah, I, I perceive them to be good at small box card games. And I think that's a huge part of the market that I think too many people either scoff at or just kind of don't play to the same level. Right. But it's good. Right. It, they're, they're good intro games for a lot of people and much more accessible than other ones. I ended up getting this as just an add on to something else in Kickstarter. Like I think um, I got the Renegade puzzles. You know, they did they did a bunch of puzzles of their art. And let me tell you, the cover from Arboretum makes one beastly difficult puzzle. <laughs> it's all the same. It's all oh the same. God, that all those little white and blue patterns. Yeah, it was it was it was actually super fun, but it was really hard. And I actually ended up getting Gudetama as an add on to that. And uh, super glad I did. That game's great. That's awesome. That is Gudetama, the lazy egg card game by Ben Eisner and Steve Ellis. Renegade card game. One A on the mogul scale. Really easy, really cheap, really fun. If this one isn't a one A, what is, you know, pretty much. Yep. Perfect. It's one of those that was so easy the first time through. We're like, is there a game here? This one's this one's really easy. But yeah, that push pull of trying to keep your low cards for the end, but not spend them is really, really tough. Cool. Jake, I have to admit I've cheated on you. Yeah, you played a splatter without me. I did. I committed splatter adultery without Spl- having you split adultery, split adultery, <laughs> which is funny, too, because as we talked about in last episode, the splatters were the games that fell the most for me because I just haven't played them, haven't really interacted with them in a long while. I played bus a lot pre-demic, but during demic DD, I have not been able or P. It's not a, it's not a demic. It's a pandemic <laughs> DP during pandemic. I have not been playing them much. So I hear you played bus. I did. And not only I've, I've cheated on you with bus, I've cheated on you with Indonesia and I've cheated on you with antiquity. Oh my gosh. What are you doing? Confessing all your sins all at once. Speaking of games that fit a slot really well, I have had several opportunities lately where I needed to play a game that a wasn't super long. B had a lot of interaction. It was with a group that likes to hockey fight a lot. And C didn't have a lot of rules. And if bus isn't square in the middle of those crosshairs, I don't know what is. <laughs> it's it's so perfect. And it's it's constrained. It doesn't go on too long. The rules make sense for people who aren't that into games. I think it's actually yep. easier for non-gamers to pick up bus than it is for board gamers to pick up bus. Like it's an action selection game where the rules and each action, well, with the exception of one or two, are so ridiculously straightforward that it's really easy to explain and teach this game but holy cow what a what a knife bite in a phone booth this game is so backing it up a notch jake why don't you give us all a little background on what the game of bus consists of so we are all in a mystical town that has two entry points from trains on the outside and, and we are inexplicably all the streets are named after other board game references. Absolutely. And the original art for this game is absolutely charming, kind of ugly, but charming in its own way. And what you're doing is we're different bus lines trying to much like the South African. I can't remember the name of them, but they had like little privately owned trucks. They drive people around and we're trying to do the most valuable routes to bring people from places to different places, depending on the time of day. 
if it's in the day, they want to go to work. If it's in the evening time, they want to go to the bar. If it's nighttime, they want to go home and sleep so they can do it all over the next day. So we're laying down these different tracks to try to be able to get to these different patrons and bring them around and be connected to the new train systems that's going to bring in new people into the town and bring them everywhere and trying to get the most victory points. But this is not like the Euro games where it's 77 to 43 at the end of the game. It's like six to four because you're only able to move people right to six one times in the entire game or something along those lines. And it's it's so good. I love this game so much. I'm so happy you like it. And a couple of the really interesting, unique things about this game is Number one, you're moving people around, but if they're already at the spot that they want to be at, they just go there and then that spot is occupied and somebody else can't move their person there. So turn order is insanely critical in this game. Everything in this game is insanely critical. Oh, yeah, (laughs) completely. So you go first and you get to move your people to someplace and occupy those spots before somebody else, somebody at that person that goes after you may not get to move anybody because of the fact that either they're already occupied because the the people are already where they want to be, or you've already moved them there for them. And uh, that's one of the many touch points of interaction that makes this such a gnarly game. Also, one thing that's super unique about this one is I love the action economy in this, that you have a set number of action markers and you can use those kind of at any pace you want to, right? If you could find a way to take 20 actions in the first turn and be done, well, that's a choice. It's a bad one. But it's a choice. (laughs) Once you're out of action placement cubes, you're done, which is probably bad because somebody who budgeted their action cubes better gets to take actions after you're done and just move their stuff wherever they want to, just unhindered by any of your actions. I love that aspect of the game, Jake. I mean, I, I don't know if there's any aspect of this game I don't love and putting it all together makes it even something that I like even more. The third really unique thing that everybody talks about, but, you know, hey, we would we'd be remiss if we didn't mention it is the ability to stop time because, you know, every bus company has the ability to just go, hey, I know you thought you were getting off work, but I just stay at work for a whole nother shift, which totally makes sense. If we were to set up uh, uh, the the part of our culture that be in charge of stopping time, it would be the bus companies, right? <laughs> yeah, they, they, oh, they yeah have been- completely. They have been bestowed this power by by society at large. We have embodied them with the power. So the upshot of that is you spend an entire round of very expensive action cubes lining it up so that you can take all of your hardworking people from their offices and truck them off to the bar for the evening. And nope, somebody says, no, 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 everybody stays at work. Well, all my people are already at work, so I don't get to move them and score. Funny that. (laughs) But Phil, who's been working on laying that the whole time that you didn't quite perceive that way correctly, you could have known exactly that he was going to stop time. And then it just throws everyone off when everyone goes to the action selection point. If anybody's even getting close to the time stop, you're like, what is going on? So fun. Yeah, this is this is really a delightful game. Um, I I have a love hate relationship with splatter games. The ones I love, I really love the ones I hate. I really hate. And this is clearly in the love category. Absolutely. I'm always down to play this one and hopefully it gets played a lot in the uh, post pandemic time. EP. And Jake, have we given this one a mogul scale rating? I got to feel like we have to have, right? We have. We have. I think I was. The issue is we have given a lot of them, but I was bad about putting them in the uh, spreadsheet for a while. So sometimes we did, but didn't. But I think this one's a 2C all day. And yeah, I would I would call it exactly that. If it isn't a 2C, it should be. Wonderful. Fantastic. So we're going from a 2C to an 18 LA. Uh (laughs) I see what what you did there. Thank you, sir. And by the uh, way, neither of those are correct data points on the mogul scale. 
what would we say it was 3d yeah there is not an 18 on the mogul scale nor there is, is there an la so 18 la it is an 18xx game designed by tony fryer and published by Trax games and seahorse laser design i believe is what the name of the company is on etsy that is publishing it 18 la is pretty cool it is taking the, the design ethos from at least what Tony's written down was there's a lot of games that were 1830, but on a different map. But we got to a point where 1830 is not the most commonly owned game by a lot of 18xx people. 1846 probably fits that that bill a little bit better. So why don't we do the same kind of design ethos and take the 1846 components, put in that asterisk, mainly just the train tiles and transposing it onto a different region with different rules. So 18LA Los Angeles was born. It's pretty cool. It has very much the same rules as 1846 with capitalization. The main issue is it's a much smaller board with both east-west routes and north-south routes. And the slashy train, so the three slash five train, can run on the same track as the full number train, so like the two, three, fours. And so what that ends up kind of being like is it's like 1862, where you kind of end up getting one really good route that you're double counting because you're running different trains on the same route. Yeah, and I guarantee I missed that at some point during our plays of it and did it wrong (laughs) because I don't know that I completely understood what you were talking about when you said slashy trains. Slashy. I'm just like, oh, duh. Correct. (laughs) It's such a dumb term for them, but it's 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 weirdly cute. So I guarantee I guarantee I didn't do that. Yeah, Yeah. but that's that's a big part of the game. And it feels like controlling to get a decent end game route with like a four, six and a six is really, really, really helpful. I have some complaints with it, but generally I enjoy it. I think that the fruit private, the fruit processors private, and the PT private are really, 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 really good. Even better than the respective um, really good privates in 46 are. I also am not super in love with the distribution of them. So in 1846, we all know it's kind of like a weird draft where you're cycling the cards through through the deck and everyone kind of gets to buy some passes and stuff like that. In this one, you take out a few of the cards and then you just people just choose. When it's your turn, you just buy one from, from the face up. So everybody knows what everybody bought. And I, I, I don't know, it just doesn't ring true to me. It's it's not like a draft. It's not gamey enough, but it's not just a normal windfall auction. I'm 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 not sold on that aspect of the game, which is a bummer because private distribution is like a huge part of all these games. Do you think that would make it more approachable of a game? Because we all we, we've talked about at length about how sometimes the opening auction is so intimidating. Yeah, I guess. But I mean, that's the, I mean, I think that's the main reason that 1846 was so praised as a good starter game, because you're drafting it. You can't really ruin the draft. You totally can. But you yeah, <laughs> like, oh, really? <laughs> I guess you, you can do worse than like a maybe. I don't know. You don't have to make crazy pricing decisions compared to just yeah, do you want this or do you yeah, want that's passes. Fair. But yeah, I don't I don't know if this is more friendly or less friendly than a draft by just selecting what you want. I think what you can tell is you can tell people and with regards to the 1846 draft, you can just say, hey, go easy. Right. Your first game or two, just go easy. Don't buy them all. Well, and, and same thing with 1846. You can just say, hey, don't buy them all. Take a pass when you can. Here's the couple that are really good. Take those. Yep. You yep. Know? Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. And some of them are situational, but you can usually get a pretty good position from that. But with this, it's like, OK, well, here's all I don't know however many there are 10 privates which one do you want i don't know well, which one do they all do are they good i don't know i think pt and uh the fruit private are really good if you can get the respectable companies with them but i don't know i think one of the other interesting MacGuffins about this game too is it's all cities if you look at the map every single space has a city or a dit on it and so therefore tokening becomes a really interesting battle in this game as does just trying to find and run different routes i mean it's 
it's very much an interesting operational puzzle. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I like it. I don't love it. And I'm so happy. I'm, I actually, I might say I love it because I love the theory behind it so yeah, much. And the I, fact I, that they're, I it's, it's an expansion of a game that kind of already exists. And there's so many games that don't do that. You know, they're in 18xx. I mean, we're reusing the same even sized components most of the time. And yes. there's not as many games that just say, okay, why don't we take 18 Chessy's tile set and add on 50, one more sheet of tiles to it, take out a couple, I don't know, whatever. They can figure it out. We put a man on moon. And then, okay, we have a completely different game. We're using all those components. You know, it seems more earth-friendly. It seems maybe a little bit more profitable for the company to be publishing less big games. Maybe there's enough complaints that people don't have the base copy that they don't feel comfortable doing that. Yeah, I'm all for the notion of taking a system that is popular, well-established, and and well-loved, and just creating a new map for it. Thus, you know, kind of morphing it into a systems game where you've got a new game in the 1846 system. Right. I think I, I like that notion rather than just going the, hey, it's a brand new 18xx game. What's this one about? Well, it's kind of like da, 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 it's da, da, mostly but it's like, the same of 1830, but it's got 46. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think we can be more apparent with the source material and a little bit be more apparent on that, you know, just kind of play into that. And then beyond that, I think we do have one special message in regards to this as well, right? Yeah, uh, we, we know he's a listener and kind of taking that thought to a to an extreme and saying, hey, we got a system that's great and we would like more content in that world. Scott Peterson, we want 1849 on a bigger map. Could we Gosh, be more explicit? Yeah, we, we want, want 1849 on a bigger map. <laughs> or any 18xx designers. I think it'd be so cool. That game is so good. But it's so small. I want to see if it work well in a bigger system. And who knows? I'm sure we can get a comment that 1849394, some strange number that we never heard yeah. of, exists. <laughs> well, and we suck for not knowing about it. And, and maybe it doesn't, right? Because one of the things about 1849 is it's a pretty brutal, unforgiving game where it's entirely possible to go sit on the couch in the first hour. So maybe having an eight-hour version where you sit on the couch for seven hours is a bad plan. Right. Who knows? But anyway, I'd like to see what it happens because it'd be sweet. Yep. That is my Christmas list, uh, Scott. I, that's what I want in my Christmas stocking this year is I want a uh, riff on the 1849 design in a bigger game. I would absolutely agree. Keeping up with uh, the kind of cozy Christmas list, why don't we do some fireside chats? When we first started this podcast, I think we were really good about doing kind of topics outside of what yeah. we played this week and kind of a main subject topic. We don't do as much. So we got a handful, just kind of smaller little conversational things to just kind of have. And they're all game related that we should that we should kind of bring up. So to start it off, Mark. Oh, hold on. Hold on. Oh, go ahead. Hold on. Got to get my uh, got my fuzzy bunny slippers on. I'm oh, putting on my gotcha. putting on my robe. I've got a, uh, a nice got an eggnog uh, with me here. A scratchy sweater over a nice flannel. Lovely. Think you, think you need your dog curled up on your lap. Get Frankie up on your lap. She's already bugging me. She keeps on pawing the back of my chair. I apologize <laughs> to the listeners. I have to pet her, get a reposition so I can pet her the whole time. So Christmas gaming, Mark, what are you planning to do? We actually, as a family, kind of double down on gaming as a family, because generally speaking, we usually plan it so everybody in the family is off for the week between Christmas and New Year's. And we don't make plans on doing much that week other than spending time as a family. So therefore, that's kind of our week of gaming. And my first gaming plan for Christmas is one with a holiday theme, Jake. It's a Christmas uh, theme game. I didn't realize so, this when you wrote it down. So much, even <laughs> right on the cover. It says Santa Monica. Oh, yeah. Just ignore the second <laughs> one. Because you wrote that. And I said it's a holiday game, right? I'm like, I guess it's people celebrate Christmas in Santa Monica. I didn't realize that literally Santa 
the guy the with the white beard is on it. Yeah, I love this game. It's my game of the year of the nine, nine games that I've played that released in 2020. Well, excluding the 18 Chesapeake because that came out last year. It's so good. And I think your family's going to really like it. It's a really accessible tableau builder that has a touch of cuteness to it that feels so much flowier than, let's say, Wingspan or Imperial Settlers or something of that line. But it's it's still similar enough to that. Yes, I, I have to agree, Jake, like many other really good Christmas presents. Full disclosure, this was Jake's Christmas present to me. So thank you, Jake. Well, it also came with the caveat that uh, I get it back if you don't like it. <laughs> I don't know if you read that on that, but if you accepted the gift. You not own a copy? No. I don't no. buy stuff for myself around this time of year. I'm I didn't realize you didn't it. even own a copy of it. No, that's why I bought it for you, because there's an odds of chance it bounces off your family, and then I just take it. So <laughs> I've been texting uh, William, like, scary Santa Monica stories, so he's just afraid of the city. <laughs> and like every good Christmas present, like, I don't know about your family, but, you know, if somebody's getting an iPhone for Christmas, it ends up coming in like a two by two foot box. This mm-hmm. giant box with half a tree worth of wrapping paper on it to camouflage what it is. Santa Monica, much the same. Absolutely. We all had a hearty laugh about how big the box is relative to what's actually in it. Gotcha. Well, speaking of big boxes, I think you're going to play another pretty big box game this Christmas, too. Indeed. Gloomhaven continued our campaign with that one. We've talked about it at length. We most recently failed in the boss battle in the sewers. Kind of badly. Hmm. With oozes multiplying and imps multiplying all over the place. So like many things in Gloomhaven, the answer is go faster before they start multiplying. (laughs) So we sprint sprint. Yeah. So we got to try that again. Another game I am planning on introducing the family to Castles of Burgundy. Jake, you'd think that such an evergreen game, we'd be old hats at that game. But no, I've never introduced that to my family. It's not great with four. Mm, I it's fine. Really? I mean, it plays fine. I just find let me rephrase that. I've gotten so used to playing it at two because I think it's the best at two that I don't okay, like it at fair. four because it takes so much longer. Ah, <laughs> uh, OK. Well, that's a fair take on it. Right. And so I, I usually don't even break it out and bring it to game night because it's like, I'm only going to play this at two. Sure. Yeah. OK. But it's not a bad game. I don't think you'll have the same impression as me. That's just my right. weirdly specific terms. I do think it's a game that uh, my family would like a lot and that I, I at least want to introduce them to that. So if there is a case where it's just two of us want to play something quick, that now there's a institutional knowledge on how to play Castles of Burgundy. Absolutely. That's worth it. We're also going to play uh, the trick takers I talked about earlier in this episode because those are kind of top of mind right now, along with uh, I'm sure we'll play some teach you and the crew as well. And then finally, we have a holiday tradition of whipping out and playing Caverna the week of Christmas, and I'm sure we will do it this week as well. Nice. That's a good list. Jake, what are you planning on playing? I got my new Crokinole board, played it with the sisters-in-law. They came over the other night and we played that, which was nice. So I'm bringing that. And then while I was there, my sister-in-law who lives in Des Moines saw my game thing. She said, oh, you have the Harry Potter adventure battle game. I love that. Harry Potter Hogwarts battle. Yeah, that's what it's called. Not 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 adventure battle. Ignore the word adventure battle. She's been playing that with her boyfriend and they absolutely love it. So she's actually going to teach me and Anna how to play it, which would be sweet because I don't want to read the rules. (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler, Jake, there's not a whole lot of rules and I guarantee you already know how to play because it is, uh, at least at the beginning, a very, very neutered version of it's bog standard deck builder, right? Completely. Yes. But it'd also be nice, too, to, like, know that we're playing with somebody who really likes it, because I think that also made me realize that Anna's going to really like this game. If her sister likes this game, Anna's going to love this game. Yep. (laughs) Wind the film? Maybe. I put that in parentheticals, because I'm going to bring all of those games, but I'll make the game time decision if it's too hard for them. I'll be playing Cribbage a lot. I usually play with my dad and my uh, mother-in-law. 
And then Carcassonne Winter Edition, as I mentioned earlier in it, I bought it used at our one of our nice local game stores here. And it's so pretty. I just love it. It's it's cozy. It's a vibe. I like how it looks on the table. And it's just it's nice. The one thing that I'm kind of regretting is I've had a handful of people reach out to me and ask me uh, for some board game recommendations and kind of specifically for party games. And because I have board game podcast TM, I should know everything about board games. And (laughs) because we're all about the party game. We love them. And the issue is I have a couple of party games that I'm kind of interested in right now, and I don't have either of them. I want to get the wavelength one and I wanted to get the just one game and I don't have either of them. And I kind of regret not buying it because that probably would have worked out well for families versus just the uh, insider and telestration game that we end up playing. I could have loaned you a copy of Dear Lord, Jake. Dear Lord? No, thanks. God, you would have hated that. No, thanks. But I've, I've heard good things. I thought there was a decent amount of cool party games released in this past year. At least that's been my perception. And I'm not 100% aware of the board game Zeitgeist, but I just felt like there was a, some cool party games releases last year. There is. And, and honestly, Jake, you, you just queued up a great shift in topic for me here because um, we're pros. We're par- pros I know. I know. Party games wise. I realized the thing about party games is that when when I was early into collecting board games, I decided that I wanted to have a collection that would fit like a shoe for every foot, if you will. And so therefore I needed to have a great social deduction game and I needed to have a great point salad game and I needed to have a great game with miniatures on a map. And then I realized I actually hate most of those games. (laughs) (laughs) And and so then what would happen is I'd introduce this game. Then everybody goes, that was great. Let's play werewolf again. And I was like, God, no, I don't yeah, want to. Right. But it was Why? so much fun. Yeah. So I've had to pivot my collection curation to really looking at it and going, man, who's my collection really for? Right. I mean, well, mine was even worse. I'd have different tiers of each game. So for a worker placement game, I'd say, well, I don't have a heavy worker placement game. And so I'd be like, <laughs> yeah. well, I need to buy a heavy worker placement game or a heavy deck building game or something along those lines, which is so stupid. I don't know why I was trying to like curate this library deciding what the games mean something in historical reasons just not that's not for me yeah and just thinking about that i wanted to riff for a few minutes on collection curation because you know as my closet starts getting full it's causing me to really look out there and just say okay who am i buying games for am i buying games for myself am i buying them for my family am i buying them for some hypothetical group of random anybody that can show up and play games at my house And I think, Jake, where I finally landed on all this is that I need to buy games that first and foremost, I like. And if I don't like it and don't want to play it, it's not going into my collection, regardless of how good it is or how many people, how many other people might like it. Because the fact of the matter is, is that I'm probably going to be involved with it. And if I don't want to play it, then it's never seeing the light of day. Do you have a copy of Catan? Mm, Yes, I mm, I do, too. And and that's almost like the one game. That I I'm having a rough time of being like, I don't want to play this. Why do I have this? <laughs> I'd actually play Catan. That one wouldn't be that bad. But there's an awful lot of so like one night ultimate werewolf. I cringe every time somebody wants to play that game. And Dear Lord, which I mentioned before, which is kind of a party game where you're trying to like be the person that nobody realizes is speaking only in rhymes. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I can do that. And my brain wavelength can absolutely do that. My processing power. And you're trying to catch other people if it like makes it around the track without anybody catching that you're speaking in rhymes. Yeah. So there's a lot of games like that that I owned because I thought other people would want to play them. And then I just realized that they just did nothing but collect dust and cause me to reject playing them. I I just don't want to do that anymore. 
So mine's pretty similar. I think we went through the same starting path because we both were kind of the people that were introducing others around us to games. I was I had a group, the FFG group before you joined, but I still had this grandiose idea that I was going to get all my college friends into it as well, which didn't really end up working out. So I had the same realization as you probably four years ago, right before we started the podcast um, or a couple of years before I started the podcast. I ended up just kind of buying the games that I want for any rhyme or reason. If I like them, I'm going to have them. If I don't like them, I'm not going to have them. The only issue is it is tailored to the group. Like there's a lot of genres of games that I enjoy that I've actually gotten rid of just because who am I going to play them with? Like I've tried them out in three or four groups that I'm periphery to and none of them like it. Most of them actively dislike it. Why do I have it? So a big example of that would be like dudes on a map game. Not a lot of people in my world like dudes on a map game. And that's extended especially to war games. I tried to play that time and crisis game. It's a deck building game set in Rome. Really simple. Tyler and I both really liked it. It was like a pretty easy Euro slash deck builder, but it had, it's like a Waro, I think is the term that the wargaming world uses for it. But Kirk just hated it. It's like, if if that game's not get played, there's no need for me to own it. <laughs> That's your Kanban. I still get whacked over Correct. the head with Kanban every time somebody says talks about a game that just bounced off them. Right. However, I also, through this extension, am absolutely fine buying some games that other people yep. in the group yep. already own. So, like, for example, I bought Root because I just like it. You have a copy, and I most likely will play with you, but I'm still fine opening it. Agricola, Yokohama, Age of Steam, Glory to Rome, those are all games that most likely I'm going to play with you or someone who also owns it, but yet I have a copy. I definitely own a few of those, Then, and I've gotten really good at limiting those. There are, there are certainly a few games that I own just for no other reason than the fact that I like them. Right, I'm trying <laughs> like, to have that be more a higher reasoning for it. Like, that should be the first reason I own a game. I like it, and I want it, and I'd like to play it. So most of my games also, they have to be played or have some potential to be played soon, aside from a handful of games. So all my 18xx games, I'm just a pure collector with them. I don't care about needing to make sure that they all get played. I just like having them because for most of my 18x career, I haven't been able to have them. I like owning them. Same thing with the uh, Oink games. I'm not going to play all of them. I could pair my Oink game to probably down to like 10 games that I actually would play regularly. But I like having them. They look nice, and I don't have a lot of things in my life that I collect, so... Those are kind of my two excuses I allow myself. And then there's a handful of games that are historical that I'm not really going to play anytime soon, but they're not worth much, and it's nice to keep them anyways. And there's a couple that I've kept around for no other reason than the fact that, I don't know, there's sort of a uh, Island of Misfit Toys kind of game, like uh, Feudum, right? Like, nobody's going to play Feudum with me, but something about it still appeals to me, so I'm hanging on to it. Right, and there's a lot of games that just aren't worth a lot on the used market, and when I'd rather have $16 and have to ship something or just have it, I'll probably just have it. Yep. Thoughts going into the new year about that. And eh, it certainly caused me to slow down some of my game purchases and maybe tailor them a little bit better. Oh, I'm for sure slowed down. Having said that, that means that I'm willing to pursue games that I really want and fit into that at kind of more absurd levels. Right. So that means that a lot of these games that we've procured and that we talk about on air aren't games that maybe you can just run to your local friendly game store and find or games that you can even get domestically in some cases. And Jake, every once in a while, I feel a little bit bad ranting and raving about a game that's so good and you couldn't really buy it if you wanted to. So I'm going to fix that right now. Do it. I'm going to tell you where to find some of these games and how to procure some of these import games that are really worth the trouble to get. And they take a couple extra calories to achieve, but they don't necessarily always cost more money to achieve. Perfect examples of that. This episode would be Scout and Wind the Film. Absolutely worth obtaining, but you're not going to find them domestically. So the easiest way 
in a lot of cases, you can get a lot of these games on Amazon.co.jp. That's the Japanese version of Amazon. And uh, is it in Japanese? Yep, it is. But you click the little button on top that says translate to English. And then for the most part, it works exactly the same as Amazon does here locally. In fact, in most cases, they won't ship it to you free for Prime. But considering it's coming from Japan, shipping is like $5 and it arrives in three days. Yeah, I, I, I'm astounded by how well you've said it's been working. Because I just expect that it's going to take like months and years to get here. No, it's shocking how fast it arrives, actually. So a lot of times I'll look there and, you know, certainly would I try to find it from a smaller vendor? Yeah, but ooh, a lot of times you do that with Japanese companies and it goes from being a, uh, you know, $20 game to being a $70 game awfully quickly. Right. Meeple source, you know. Yeah. So the second way that I'll do some of these uh, acquisitions things, like you just mentioned, is Meeple Source. They're a local domestic company that will bring back what is probably suitcases full of games from Japan. And uh, they price them at suitcase level <laughs> pricing. So that $20 small box game uh, becomes like a $49 small box game, which may or may not be worth it to you. Yeah, I think Metro X they were selling it for $35. Yeah, exactly. The third way to do it is if you're just going to straight up buy from Japan and Amazon.co.jp doesn't have it, is you use a shipping forwarding service. And the popular one in Japan, at least, is White Rabbit. And uh, the way White Rabbit works is you get a Japanese address, essentially. You buy from any Japanese company online that you can figure out (laughs) that has an English translation and you have it shipped to White Rabbit uh, to a custom P.O. box. And then White Rabbit forwards it to you. You pay typically a commission on that. They actually buy it for you also to make sure because sometimes they won't let you buy non-domestically. So they buy it for you. They have it shipped to them. Then they repackage and ship it to you. And you'll probably add 30% to the cost of the game by doing that. But again, it's actually a pretty simple process and you can get things that are not generally available without too much pain. Yeah, I need to do that sometime. The same thing works not in Japan, Uh, European games sometimes like this is how we acquired both of our copies of the French versions of modern art is we used a company called Philibert in Europe. Yeah, I think they're like kind of the preeminent French board game retailer. I think so. They're kind of the cool stuff Inc. of France. Yeah, and and, and they were really cool. I I liked their website a lot and they were really friendly about shipping games to us. It wasn't very expensive. I don't know if they've changed that policy, but it was really cool getting, I think, the quintessential, most beautiful version of one of my favorite games. Like I said, you can't find Oink Modern Art here anywhere in the U.S., so it was just a matter of going to Philibert, ordering and having it shipped here, and, you know, did we have to pay a few bucks in international shipping? Sure, but it wasn't that bad. No, and then now I get to practice my French whenever we play and look in the back of the player boards. <laughs> and then last but not least, this is a little bit more of a wing and a prayer approach to it, but there's always the BGG Marketplace and Trade List, and Jake, I know in terms of some rare Oink games, that's bore fruit for you. It certainly has. Um, I ended up getting, uh, what's the one? It's the gray one. It's it's what rights. startups was rights. Correct. I got that. Some guy was selling it for like $17. I don't know if they bought it from Japan and brought it back or they had a couple at the convention. The other thing that I sometimes use it for is I've always had a watch list on Wine the Film. And guess how much copies of Wine the Film are usually going for? Mm, I haven't looked. I don't know. $50 to $70. That's my perception. So I sold your gift and I'm using it to, <laughs> to, hey, to you know, if you can use my podcast. gift to upgrade, you know, uh, no, good I'm on you, certainly man. keeping it. I'm, I'm being funny. But yeah, by the way, by comparison, 
I think all in, including shipping, it was maybe $23 to get a copy of that landed here in the U.S. from Amazon.co.jp. That's hilarious. I, if you do not know how to set up a tracker for the BGG marketplace so that anytime one of those games is pu- published onto the marketplace, shoot me an email and I will Zoom call you and teach you how to do it. It takes like 20 seconds and it's like the best function out of BGG. Putting a reminder in my oh, calendar for the listeners, right but it's also from you. you. Yeah, <laughs> that's for the listeners, but I guess I can teach you too. Having said that, you know, certainly I know that with acquiring some of the games like that, you get a few of them that are just burning a hole in your pocket that you haven't had a chance to play yet, Jake. And what are those games? What are what's on your shelf of shame right now? So first to start, I have a geek list of all my shelf of shame games. Um, find it on BGG and please follow it because I want everyone to know my shame. And update it very regularly. That's something I do well with the acquisition date. And the oldest one on that was acquired in 2018. Now that we're uh, seven days, eight days away from uh, 2021, got to get on it. That was a gift from my good friend, Mark, Decaslayer, the Japanese version. I have yet to play it. Speaking of bringing back a suitcase full of games. Right. That's what you did. It seems like a cool game. It's less language independent than I think I wanted it to be. And the rules use up a lot of ink. So that's been the main reason I've been apprehensive to print them off. But yeah, we got to get that played. I've been on a kick of Cubrail games still. Um, I still have Norris Bagenen, which was uh, published by Seahorse Laser, Laser Design. And I also have a copy of GMO, Golf Mobile in Ohio. I'd like to play as well. And then I have two 18xx games that I really like to play. 1893, just bought it through Happenstance. Don't really love that game. But remember last week when we said we'd love if Thomas Lehman made a train game in space? No, oh, yeah. Turns out he did that, and I've owned a copy of it for like a while. <laughs> um, 2038. I own a copy of it. It's near mint. The box is not good, but it's unpunched. So uh, we got to play that sometime, dude. Yep. I I, totally in. Totally in. That that sounds great to me. My list of games that I'm dying to play. Well, first off, as mentioned before, Santa Monica. That will definitely get played over the holiday break. I am dying to play The Cost. I've heard too many good things about that one. That's the new Spiel. One of the new Spielworks releases about the asbestos industries. Looking forward to playing the Gugong Penjun expansion, which arrived back in the fall and I've just looked at it collecting dust. Speaking of Spielworks, D Mocker is sitting next to the cost and, you know, a heavy game about the German parliament. What's not to love, right? Absolutely. Can't wait. <laughs> Can't wait. And uh, no list would be complete without at least one 18xx title. And for me, that is 1890, the game that's set in the region of Osaka. This is kind of a weird one that's really only print and playable here in the U.S. And I think it's a weird one by any measure. And I just want to experience all that weirdness because like every single major company has some wacky private power. Yeah, I, I want to play it, too. And the, it's it's the Carthaginian redraw, which I certainly like the way it looks. Yep. 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 So anyway, that is my shelf of shame for this year. That's it. Or those just the shelf of shame you're willing to admit on this podcast? No, that, that, that's the yeah. I mean, I could go on for quite a bit longer. So, I mean, let's let, let, let's continue looking. You got to make list. a geek uh, list too. I love the geek list. It's fun to shame uh, yourself, and you have an acquisition <laughs> date, and you get to delete them off. You feel so accomplished when you play it. That's great. I know. If I was going to make the whole list, we'd also have to include things like eighteen Harzban. We'd have to include uh, shoot, what else? Uh, CO two Vinyos. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of them. Too many. Too many. So. Jake, before we wrap it up tonight, we did foreshadow the fact that we were going to reveal what we're going to be doing for episode 50. And I got it figured out and I haven't shared it with you yet. But what is it? Except I did actually share it with you via Slack message yesterday and you apparently missed it completely. I'll pretend. (laughs) 
So what we're going to do for episode 50 is we're going to do something which is wildly overdue. We're going to revisit episode zero. Have you listened to episode zero? In my, <laughs> if you have our condolences, because it's so terrible. Bad. It's the big <gasps> breath episode. <gasps> yeah. <laughs> and ostensibly what episode zero is, is, is it's a little bit more of a uh, personal episode about the backgrounds of what, who we are, what we like, the type of gamers we are, what our families is like, and a lot of details we don't necessarily put in our normal episodes. And it's meant to sort of stand on as sort of a, um, you know, when you open up a book and it says, you know, about the author, it's kind of that episode. Right. And it wasn't as sappy like I live on XYZ Street. It was more in relations to games and kind of our history to it. And our preferences. And it'll just be, it'll be fun to update those things. Which should ground everybody, you know, if, if, if you talk to somebody and they and they say what they're interested in, that, that can at least help you guys figure out why we like certain games and why we don't, you know? Yeah, it definitely gives you a yardstick as to which to measure our opinions by. Yeah, besides just using they're bad. <laughs> exactly. So um, that's what we're going to do for our episode 50. We're going to re-record. We're not going to re-record it. We're going to redo it. I mean, it's going to be a fresh take on episode zero. That's going to be updated for our current tastes and preferences and family situations and everything else. Hopefully that'll be a fun one for everybody to listen to. Absolutely. All right. Well, it's been a fun episode, man. It is. Nice talking with you. Regardless of what holidays you're celebrating, happy holidays to everybody from the gaming moguls. And let's all raise a toast and hope for a better 2021. Gosh, I think it'd be pretty easy to do. Frankie's growling in agreement. (laughs) Setting our bar low, just like usual, Jake. (laughs) All right. Talk to you later. All right. Good night, everybody. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls Podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.